Hi, everyone. My name is Warren Perry, and I'm a researcher for the Catalog of American Portraits. And tonight, we're here to talk about the portrait of Eudora Welty by Mildred Nungister Wolf. And also, uh, just to, uh, to kind of set us up a little bit, I want to make sure I, I clear my sources out with everybody. First of all, I'm going to have biographical information from the Dictionary of American Writers. Secondly, from this book on our artist's work. And this book is actually on Mildred Nungister Wolf, edited by her daughter, Elizabeth Wolf, with whom I had the pleasure of talking about this work a couple of weeks ago. I'm also going to be alluding to three books written by Miss Welty, two novels, The Optimist's Daughter and The Robber Bridegroom, and a short story, I forgot why I, lived at the, why I live at the P.O. And then uh, this book, uh, One Writer's Beginning, and then I'm also going to speak briefly in the end about Miss Welty's photography, and I'll get my information from this book, uh, One Time, One Place. Again, my name is Warren Perry, and this work is a portrait of Eudora Welty by Mildred Nungister Wolf. Miss Wolf was born in Salina, Ohio on August 23, 1912. Her family moved to Decatur, Alabama in 1916, where she attended school, and then attended Athens College in Athens, Alabama, later graduated with a degree from Alabama College in Montevella, Alabama. After teaching high school in Alabama, she attended the Art Institute of Chicago, and soon she was competing nationally with her artwork, winning prizes and selling her work also. Her studio, if you're interested, is in Jackson, Mississippi, and the family still operates her studio. It's run by her daughter, Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is the one who provided me with the reference to the wonderful story. Miss Wolf, actually, uh, our artist, uh, recently passed away. She only, she only passed away in February of this year. This work... I found at the University of Mississippi, actually at Square Books. Anybody know any Square Books trivia? That's one of the three places where John Grissom signs his novels. And there's a passage in here about how this portrait came about. This portrait was the, uh, was the subject... Before it ever came into being, it was the subject of a discussion between Eudora Welty and Miss Wolf. I'm sorry, I've got to go back to my, my book. I'm not finding the information I need in the right order. The story about how this came into place is very funny. There was another portrait of Miss Welty executed by an artist in Jackson, Mississippi, and the National Portrait Gallery at one time wanted an image of Eudora Welty. Well, this artist in Jackson, this nameless artist, found out about the request that the Portrait Gallery had and decided he wanted to take this portrait he had executed of Miss Welty, get it back from her, and sell it to the National Portrait Gallery. So he would have a work in the National Actually, maybe a he or she. I'm not sure who it was. This is the way that story goes. 
This is, in the, this is Miss Wolf speaking here. She was a resident of Jackson, Mississippi, and she says, I had always wanted to paint your door wealthy. She reminded me of a woman in one of Rembrandt's portraits holding a fan. She, like Eudora, is not exactly pretty, but not ugly either, and it's a beautiful painting. Once I asked Eudora to pose for me, but at that time her mother was ill and she was making frequent trips to the nursing home in Vicksburg to see her. She could not spare the time. After, later, after her mother passed away, I asked her again. I decided to paint a watercolor portrait, which wouldn't take much of her time. She came out to the studio with a book on Chekhov. She sat reading it, not looking up, laughing at what she was reading every now and then, and making a comment to me with a glance and a twinkle in her eye. The result was an immediate and intimate portrait, all done on the spot. If you can see it, that's this portrait right here. This portrait I saw last week. It hangs in the Center for Southern Studies at the University of Mississippi. It's a really nice watercolor with a very soft touch, and it captures Miss Welty's essence, I, I think, very well. This portrait came along like this. This companion piece came along like this. A few years later, the National Portrait Gallery in Washington was seeking a portrait of Eudora to add to its collection. She herself owned a portrait that had been done when she was a young woman, but she wanted to keep the portrait hanging in her house. The artist who painted it was now pressing Eudora to sell it back to her, apparently so she could turn around and sell it to the National Portrait Gallery. Eudora was outraged. She said to me, I just wish somebody would paint another portrait and keep that woman silent so I don't have to hear from her again. She didn't outright ask me to paint one, but she suggested it would be a good idea. I thought about it for a year before deciding I might as well try it. In 1988, I asked her if I could come and make a drawing of her in her house. It was very cold that day. The heat was off in her house, and she was sitting in her chair in the living room with her coat on. I didn't take my coat off either. I very carefully made a full-scale drawing in charcoal, took a photograph, and made some color notes. I used all this information to start on the canvas in the studio so Eudora would not have to sit for the portrait. When I was satisfied, I had her come and look. She liked it. I packed it up and sent it, with some trepidation, to Washington. The selection committee at the National Portrait Gallery sent word back. They loved the composition and the hands and the head, but they thought the colors of the blue coat and the red scarf were too loud to go with their other works. If I was willing to make it more somber, they would be happy to reconsider it. When the painting came back, I darkened the color of the coat and using Eudora's borrowed scarf as a model, carefully painted in its printed pattern, toning down the color at the same time. The committee loved it, loved the revised painting, and we were very pleased that I'd been willing to change it. I charged them more than I ever charged for a portrait before and used the money on a trip to Europe with Bibi, Elizabeth, her daughter, in 1989, the year the Berlin Wall came down. I thought that was a nifty story. And you see, in this portrait, she's reading Robert Frost's The Road Not Taken, and it's, very, it's got a very scholarly look about it. I want to talk a little bit about Eudora Welty now. Oh, and if you're interested in other of Miss Wolfe's work, or her husband's work, uh, or her daughter's work, the Wolf Studio is on the web. It's at www.thewolfstudio.com. The Wolf Studio, one word. Eudora Welty. Miss Welty was born 100 years ago, two weeks ago. And she only passed away in 2001. I think 
when I think about her body of work, it strikes me that if you had to have a pattern or if you had to have a prototype for a successful writer, her life is it. She started writing at a very early age. She became successful early, and she stayed successful and productive her entire life along the way, getting, getting a couple of big prizes and writing some work that, for, for lack of better words, is really compassionate and sensitive, but sympathetic, I think, is the word I'm looking for, to the human spirit. The Optimist's Daughter is a story of a young lady, Laurel, who's an artist, and she lives in Chicago, and her mother has passed away. And she comes to Mississippi because her father's about to have eye surgery. Her father ends up being in the hospital until he passes. And the book is a constant battle between this daughter and the father's new wife's family and the father's new wife. And these people, the people who are kind of married into the family now, the wife, the new wife, Faye and her family, they're just awful people. They talk about... They talk about uh, things in the wrong place. They're gathered at the funeral. They've got a kid like that kid in Shane. Shane, Shane, you remember this kid? I'm talking about? Um, and, and he's walking around with a couple of pistols on him, and he's doing the pow-pow thing and asking who the body is and all. It's just a menace of a child, awful, awful kid. What was it? Uh, what was the line from um, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof? Uh, no Neck Monsters. This kid is typical of of that sort of, uh, that pattern child. Anyway, the entire time that we have this, this narrative, we're not finding Eudora Welty beating us over the head with their ugliness, but with their humanity. They just happen to be on the ugly side of things. And poor Laurel, who is, who is having to engage this, we don't find Laurel combatant. She's tolerant. And, and like I said, it's just a very, very sympathetic take of a woman who's in, uh, who's in the crisis of the time of her father's death. I think I skipped over part of the biography, but we'll get back to that in just a little bit. Eudora Welty's South is this Gothic South. It's this, uh, it's this study of, of the Southern character, but this character we can, we can take... And, and put anywhere. You see characters like this in Chekhov. You see characters like this in Shakespeare. The, this humanity that's at work. I know everybody, if you, if you haven't read it, I'm pretty sure you, you've heard of Why I Live at the P.O. Why I Live at the P.O. is a battle between a sister and her, her other sister who's, who's returned home with uh, an adopted child that happened when she was on this. She picked up this child on the road that she calls this child Shirley T. Um, the story of uh, it's a very brief story that occurs over over a morning, a day with a drunk uncle running around a house trying to get the granddad out of the hammock, and and these characters are just just yelling at each other. There's this battle going on. It's. It's kind of a sensitive and comedic stare. 
at a fun little family in another moment of crisis. Someone's moved in with a kid and I've only got two chickens to feed five people, now two more. Anyway, um, let's get back to Miss Welty for another minute or two. Something that, um, something that I want to point out, again, is her success over a long, long period. She published beginning in her 20s and continued to, to work. They say that growing up in the South, you know, we'd hear rumors, if you go down to Jackson, Mississippi, you can, you can drive by her house down on Pine, I think it was at Pinehurst, I think it was 113 Pinehurst, you'd drive by her house and you'd see her typing in her windows. But she was aware of her success. She began delivering her, her works and her papers to the state archives in the, in the mid-1950s. And then she made plans in the 1980s to give her house over to the state of Mississippi. Uh, she was modestly aware of her success. But, you know, they say also that um, you know, you'd see her shopping in the Jitney jungle down there. So she was just, a, just an average person who happened to be an exceptional writer. From one writer's beginnings, I'd like to, I'd like to share with you a couple of paragraphs of, of what I think is the nucleus of, of her, her writing mission. Writing a story or a novel is one way of discovering sequence and experience, of stumbling upon cause and effect in the happenings of a writer's own life. This has been the case with me. Connections slowly emerge like distant landmarks you're approaching. Cause and effect begin to align themselves, draw closer together. Experiences too indefinite of outline in themselves to be recognized for themselves connect and are identified as a larger shape, and suddenly, a light is thrown back, as when your train makes a curve showing that there's been a mountain of meaning rising behind you on the way you've come, is rising there still, proven now through retrospect. It seems to me, writing of my parents, now in my 70s, that I see continuities in their lives that weren't visible to me when they were living, even at the times that have left me my most vivid memories of them there were connections between them that escaped me. Could it be because I can better see their lives, or any lives I know today because I'm a fiction writer? See them not as fiction, certainly. See them, perhaps, as even greater mysteries than I knew. Writing fiction has developed in me an abiding respect for the unknown in a human lifetime and a sense of where to look for the threads, how to follow, how to connect, Find in the thick of the tangle what clear line persists. The strands are all there. To the memory, nothing is ever lost. And you see this questioning going on, this searching going on inside her dialogue. And I don't know if she ever started out with an outline, the way some writers say, I have to have an outline from beginning to end. But there's a wonderful randomness that, that occurs inside her work, bouncing from conversation to conversation. And you get the feeling that she could just carry dialogue on forever because her ear is absolutely perfect for everything that goes on around her. And I know I'm doing a lot of reading here, but I just have to read this one passage from Why I Live at the P.O. It's, the situation is the sisters moved into the house and the kid's running around and it's the 4th of July. Uncle Rondo, I says, I didn't know who that was. Where are you going? Sister, he says, Get out of my way. I'm poisoned. If you're poisoned, stay away from Papa Daddy, I says. 
keep out of the hammock. Papa Daddy will certainly beat you on the head if you come within 40 miles of him. He thinks I deliberately said he ought to cut off his beard after he got me the job at the P.O. I told him and told him and told him, and he acts just like he don't hear me. Papa Daddy must have gone stone deaf. He picked a fine day to do it then, says Uncle Rondo, and before you could say Jack Robinson, flew out in the yard. What he'd really done, he'd drunk another bottle of that prescription. He does it every single 4th of July, as sure as shooting, and it's horribly expensive. Then he falls over in the hammock and snores, so he insisted on zigzagging right out onto the hammock, looking like a half-wit. Papa Daddy woke with a horrible yell, and right there, without moving an inch, he tried to turn Uncle Rondo against me. I heard every word he said. Oh, he told Uncle Rondo, I didn't learn to read till I was eight years old, and he couldn't, he didn't see how in the world I could ever get the mail put up at the post office, much less read it. And he said if Uncle Rondo could only fathom the lengths he'd gone to to get me that job. And he said, on the other hand, he thought Stella Rondo had a brilliant mind and deserved credit for getting out of town. All the time he was just lying there swinging as pretty as you please and looping out his beard. And poor Uncle Rondo was pleading with him to slow down the hammock. It was making him dizzy as a, as a witch to watch it. But that's what Papa Daddy likes about a hammock. So Uncle Rondo was too dizzy to get turned against me for the time being. He's Mama's only brother, and it's a good case of one-track mind. Ask anybody. Ask a certified pharmacist. Uncle Rondo's got a little, a little thing he likes to do there. Um, Eudora Welty, aside from her career as a writer, has, in the past several decades, become really appreciated as a photographer. Her body of photography exists as a result of her employment with the Works Progress Administration beginning in the mid-1930s. And she had graduated, let's see, she, gra she went to Mississippi University for women for two years, then she transferred to the University of Wisconsin, then she went to uh, study business in New York. But then she came out at one moment, she says, after I got out of college, she's talking about the Depression she said, to be in Mississippi during the Depression, you'd hardly know there was a Depression going on. I mean, it was the poorest state in the Union. The Works Progress Administration hired her to be a PR person and to distribute information around the state of Mississippi. She discusses that period in her life as a period when she truly came to discover the state of Mississippi. And again, when you look through the images she took in this period. You can see why she said it's for certain people in Mississippi would not have known there was a depression unless you'd told them because you see these folks and they're out on their porches and the laundry is strung out on the wires across the porch and, and it's obviously, um, this actually, this photo of this little girl in this swing reminds me of my wife. I came home one day after we first were married and she was sitting out on the porch in the swing asleep. <laughs> I think you had a cold, didn't you? Spring of 1997. In any case, you see the poverty. These shots were taken all over the state. And I'll leave this out here. Let you look at it. This is one of them that I think is kind of typical of, uh, of those moments. These folks are sitting. I love... I love the composition of this. These folks are on their haunches. I don't know if anybody can still do that. I can't do that. My knees will give completely out. They're sitting on their haunches and they're eating watermelon in the town square in Pontotoc, Mississippi. This is after a political rally. There's a picture of this picture in that book. 
and it takes place immediately before this shot was taken. And there were, there were moments like this, just little bitty slices of the day as she went around. A lot of times she would get permission to take these images uh, as she went into churches or saw people sitting out on their front porches. But they're just little bitty slices of life in Mississippi in 1936. And she didn't she didn't have a, um, you know, a great big camera. She had, I think she calls it in that book, a model that was one step up from a brownie. So she, she would take her, her film down and she would actually have it developed in a, in a place that professionally developed film until she said she got a secondhand uh, developing unit from the state of Mississippi. I can't remember what department in the state, but it was really, uh, to her, Taking snapshots is what she says. She's taking snapshots. She didn't consider herself a, you know, a photographer as such. It's just someone who's recording these moments for, for history. All that to say, these works have enjoyed so much attention recently. I think it was 2004, there was a large exhibit of 60 of these works at the National Museum for Women in the Arts just down the street. And these editions are found in a lot of places. Um, I know the state of Mississippi actually has a traveling exhibition of these works going around right now. So that's another super aspect to her character, I think. And I had an English teacher who said, and she was just such a kind person. And I think that all kind of falls back to the sympathetic notes that you, that you hear inside her works when you read them. And the last thing that I wanted to bring up about Miss Welty is this. When I was down at Ole Miss last week, I was, I was talking to this fellow, uh, Randy Long. He's an attorney from um, Corinth, Mississippi. And he was telling me, did you hear about the W? And I said, what about the W? The W is the Mississippi University for Women. And that's where Miss Welty attended school for two years before she went to Wisconsin. The W is considering changing its name. And they've got two other names. One is Waverly, and I can't remember the other name, but anyway. Uh, the third name, the big name that everybody's lobbying for is Welty, Welty University, which would be really, really cool, I think. I, I, um, I'm obviously not an alum of the Mississippi University for Women, so I couldn't really speak out, but I just think it sounds really cool. And the cool thing is if they named it Welty University, they could say, we still get our, we stu we've still got our W. So <laughs> anyway, thank you all for coming out. If anybody's got any questions, we might could field them. Isn't it amazing? Eudora Welty, Walker Percy, Shelby Foote, William Faulkner. I forgot about Faulkner. He's the one who won the Nobel Prize. Uh, I don't know. Walker Percy and Shelby Foote both said, or I was, well, I was listening to Shelby Foote one night, and he said me and Walker had a really good English teacher. I don't know that, it, no, he didn't necessarily always talk like he had a good English teacher, but he certainly wrote like that, you know. And, I, I was telling someone years ago, I was lying, actually, when I said this, but I said, my theory is, because it's so hot, there's two things to do in Mississippi. Sit under the Hunter fan and drink whiskey. And if you're drinking your bourbon, then you're imagining, and you may as well translate that onto the paper. But I, that's just a theory, and like I said, I was lying when I said that. Uh, that the whole area, you know, uh, it, it's loaded, uh, especially during that period, the 1930s, the 1940s. You see these people, Carson McCullers, Flannery O'Connor, 
I don't, I don't know what it is. There's something in that water. Maybe it's that, uh, that, that aquifer that, that uh, runs off the Cumberland Plateau, but you, you, you can't get rid of that number and can't ignore it. And it's very odd, isn't it?